G'day and welcome to the Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael de Percy. And today I'm going to introduce you to my research area of government business relations. So in my teaching of government business relations, I focus particularly on industry policy and regulation. We look at things like interest groups and the policy process and how different interest groups can or cannot influence business, government, each other and policy and the like. We look at government business relations in terms of globalisation and the impact multinational businesses are having on governments in particular. We look at international institutions like the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the International Labour Organisation and so on and how these affect government and business. And we also consider different systems like Australia, Canada, the US, Sweden, Japan and Germany as each representing very different ways of dealing with the economic role for government and also the role for business in that uh, particular area. Now, government business relations is a sub-discipline of uh, political science and that means that we teach it in a particular way. So we focus on things like political economy, using uh, the ideas of Frank Stilwell. Uh, we also take or adopt a business approach, the likes of uh, William Burt, institutionalism from John Wanner, Stephen Bell, Neil Ryan's approach to public policy, uh, Gwyneth Singleton's uh, idea of politics and how it relates to government business relations and so on. And it's been commonplace in Australian un universities for some time to have some form of government business relations uh, course as a, a core subject in business or government related degrees. So some of the key concepts we begin with are capitalism and looking at as an economic system. And we consider ideas of government business and society and we look at you know, what is more important it's more of a rhetorical question, but uh, strong government, prosperous business or civil society. And of course, uh, all three are necessary uh, in, in the modern uh, idea of the state. And we talk about the state, politics and the economy, uh, industry policy regulation and, uh, and so on. But when we come to the capitalist economic system, I like to make the example of uh, an experiment using what's known as the theory of gravity. So... The theory of gravity, we accept that if we fall from a very high place, it will hurt ourselves when we hit the ground. Um, but, for example, if you were to take an object, you could test the theory of gravity by holding the object uh, uh, arms or shoulder height and releasing the object from your grip. And, of course, if you did this, uh, the object would fall to the ground. Now, the theory of gravity could be disproven if the object didn't fall. Now, of course, if you're on Earth, it's probably not going to happen unless you're in a vacuum chamber or whatever. But the point is that we can actually test the natural sciences through experimentation. And the problem with the social sciences is that we can't really uh, conduct experiments in the same manner. We can't simply conduct an experiment and see uh, what assumptions of human nature are inherent in, in that particular activity or that humans will behave in a particular way um, based on our sort of predictive model. So the social sciences become much more difficult in terms of confirming our knowledge. And so we'll often find that there are different theories that uh, look at the same subject matter and they actually have different possible or potential outcomes based on the different theory that's adopted. Of course, the problem then is that the theories can't all be right, but we also accept that they can't all be wrong as well. So understanding these theories is an exercise in understanding the best that we know at this point in time in terms of the social sciences. And I often in class will take a piece of paper and make a model aircraft or a paper plane. 
and I would sort of say to students, what is this? And they'll say, oh, it's a plane, it's this, it's that. You know, really, it's it's a model. It's not actually an aeroplane. It's a model of an aeroplane made with a sheet of paper. And and then I sort of say, you know, if you were explaining to somebody what it, what, what is an aeroplane, you could actually create a model, show them, and then it wouldn't be such a shock when they saw the, the actual aeroplane in action once that happened. And then, of course, I'll take a piece of paper and I'll offer it to a student and I'll say to them, now make me a model of the Australian mining industry. And of course, this is impossible. It's not a physical model that you can make. And that brings us back to one of the other problems uh, or challenges for the social sciences is how do we actually model these human systems which consist of ideas and processes and ways of behaving and so on. So in, in my lectures, we look at Frank Stilwell's conception of the capitalist economic system. And Frank Stilwell, uh, who was an advisor to Gough Whitlam back in the day, uh, and famous as a political economist at the University of Sydney, he, he suggests that capitalism cannot be defined as easily as we may define a chair or an elephant. But these particular features, while not necessarily unique to capitalism, together they convey its distinctive character. And so in, in, in the model, uh, which I'll, I'll add to uh, the, the blog page um, as an image, at the base of the model is the private ownership of the means of production. And this is very important because then we also have a distinctive role of the state where the state acts to protect the, the right to private property and in particular to protect the private ownership of the means of production. And we can look to Native American cultures, for example, where ownership was based more on possession rather than uh, by bill of sale. Uh, and other different ideas about uh, ownership of the means of production, such as communism and so on, which differ markedly from the capitalist economic system. But of course, it's quite difficult to explain this in the modern era, uh, because really communism, in the way that we understood it when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, is very different since the, the, the end of uh, the, the Soviet Union in 1991. So we don't really have a comparison, whereas once the world was clearly divided into these two very distinct uh, economic systems. So today, uh, without that comparison, it's easy to think that capitalism is the be-all and the end-all, but uh, history has a way of proving that what we thought we knew uh, wasn't the end of times uh, in the long run. So then on the other side of the model, we look at the distinctive ideology, and this is reflected in the practice of government business relations in terms of different countries. And the two key areas that we can look at are um, education and healthcare. And, and if you look at education and healthcare in the US, very much based on the individual, uh, you need to be uh, quite good at sports, for example, to get uh, a university education if you cannot afford it, or alternatively, take out a, a study loan, a personal loan to pay for your education. And very similar with uh, healthcare, it's reliant upon the individual to either have insurance or be able to cover their costs of healthcare. Whereas when we come to Australia, we'll see that uh, the higher education contribution scheme uh, basically has a 75% uh, subsidy paid for by the taxpayer uh, for students to, uh, to go to university and they don't have to pay this back until they start earning a certain level of income. And, and also, of course, with, uh, with Medicare, which is featured in the news at the moment with a potential 0.5% uh, rise to the Medicare levy through the tax system, but more or less, uh, as an Australian citizen, you have access to uh, free health care. Uh, and all of this is based on this distinctive ideology, uh, and an ideology being a system of ideas that, in effect, um, 
provides guidance on what the proper role of the state in the economy is in, in a given jurisdiction. Now, within the capitalist economic system, we also have a market, and the market consists of different markets. There's a market for goods and services, a labour market, a land market, and a financial market where we can buy shares in companies and uh, bonds and, and other financial uh, um, other financial products. Now, the problem for the capitalist economic system is that it has an expansionary tendency. It's always expanding. We're consuming more and more. We're looking at ways to consume more and more. And, of course, this is all about the converting raw materials into, um, into finished goods and the raw materials uh, becoming less available, um, pollution, uh, climate change, and so on, are impacting on the, the ability of the, the planet to cope with the uh, pollution and so forth. Uh, from uh, manufacturing, uh, clearing land, and so forth. So, in effect, what we have is a system that is based on the endless consumption of uh, resources, but we live on a planet that has finite resources. So, it's fairly obvious that we cannot continue on the same trajectory forever. Uh, even if we allow that to happen, uh, it's not going to end well, of course. So, in many ways, capitalism uh, is a system that uh, will need to be modified. Uh, how it's modified, we don't know. Whether it happens in my lifetime, I'm not too sure. But the simple fact is, just looking at history, we can see that capitalism uh, really doesn't start to emerge until, uh, well, I suppose, coincides with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, uh, published in 1776. And this is on the back of the ideas of the nation-state, which in the Western sense really only begin in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia following the, uh, the end of the Thirty Years' War. But this idea of the state, then, uh, we can um, divide into three clear sectors. We have a public sector, which consists of government agencies, a private sector, which consists of for-profit firms, and then a voluntary sector, which consists of non-profit organisations. And in terms of the revenue, where revenue is earned, the public sector uh, earns its revenue through taxes. And taxes really are, are, are borne by business. While we may, uh, as workers, may pay uh, income tax, it is, in effect, the business that is paying for the tax on our behalf. Um, it's it's part of uh, it's part of what we earn, but it's all managed by that that business. Um, businesses, of course, pay uh, company tax and so on. And then with the voluntary sector, we have uh, non-profit organisations which will try and gain contracts with the government. And the Salvation Army and its employment services is an example of this. They could also be profit-seeking in terms of. Uh, seeking money from uh, for-profit firms, but of course non-profit organisations will often have a different uh, tax treatment, so they're, they're not regarded as earning tax, and usually their purpose has to be for some form of uh, community benefit, and they may seek donations from uh, the private sector or even grant-based partnerships or grants uh, outright from the public sector. In terms of the literature on capitalism, uh, it's also important to look at what a referred to as varieties of capitalism. And these are based on the extent of state involvement in the market. Uh, mixed economies like Canada and Australia tend to sit somewhere in the middle, but in either extreme of the, uh, the spectrum, uh, coordinated capitalism uh, is best uh, exemplified by Sweden, 
where the government traditionally has a strong role uh, in the economy. And this, of course, has changed in recent years, particularly since uh, uh, the dawn of the new century and even more so since the global financial crisis, yet there still remain remnants of a coordinated capitalist model. So very much capitalist, certainly not socialist, but tending more towards social democracy, whereas in the other extreme you have the United States of America, which may be regarded as competitive capitalism. So within these two models, uh, we're talking about these varieties of the same system, uh, just a different sort of ideological uh, viewpoint and role of the state uh, expected uh, from these. In terms of government and business, really these are the, the primary institutions that shape our world, where government's the institution that provides a common point of law and order, control and power. It has a monopoly on the control of violence, but it also has many different functions that work together to order society. And these include things like making laws, steering the economy, protecting the country and uh, shaping the society. Uh, government's involvement with business and society will vary from country to country and, of course, will differ between ideologies. But there's an expectation within most industrialised nations that there will be access to employment, a minimum standard of living and a protection of rights. And government is meant to take care of these aspects. Business, on the other hand, reflects a system where individuals use their money, land, technology, labour, knowledge and so on. Business, on the other hand, reflects a system where individuals use money, land, technology, labour and knowledge to produce goods and services that uh, help to generate wealth. And businesses, of course, now operate across different societies and with the in the jurisdictions of different governments. Uh, businesses use the resources of the whole society and nations to generate their wealth and therefore there's an expectation that not only will they use this to create material goods but they will also employ citizens, generate new technologies and new ideas and, and in some ways can actually steer society and businesses can rely on regional advantages such as natural resources, a well-educated workforce uh, supportive government policies, cheap labour expertise and so on. And so what we find is that many of the characteristics of different jurisdictions uh, will lead to uh, often distinctive types of businesses or will certainly enable these different types of businesses to be more successful in their own right. And business can be influenced by governments in terms of things like government purchases and transfer payments, for example, payments through the social security system. And for those of us... Uh, who remember the global financial crisis when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, uh, many people received around $1,000 each through the social security system, uh, which was seen as a sort of Keynesian way to boost the economy. And of course, this uh, affected in particular the retail sector with much media commentary at the time, suggesting that uh, Harvey Norman was one of the greatest beneficiaries of that, uh, that particular move. But governments also provide subsidies to farmers and miners and, and other industries, loans, they regulate uh, tax businesses, they have government as business partners, for example. And government regulates businesses with laws relating to important matters such as the environment, consumer standards and so on. Businesses can uh, often benefit from government regulation uh, where governments may limit the amount of competition um, or subsidise certain activities uh, and, and so on. But governments can also outsource some of its functions to private business, and we've seen this in uh, many of the advanced economies, uh, particularly in the last uh, 30 years or so. And of course, government can also purchase goods and services directly from business, 
and can have some sort of an influence uh, on these um, on, on these businesses. Now, the idea in liberal democracies in particular is that so society determines the ethical environment in which business operates. So, for example, in developing nations, business is given power in areas of employment, product standards, and environmental impacts, uh, and it may include other obligations that are set upon businesses, such as fair wages, consumer information, and contributing to social and community development. And it's not unusual for, uh, for example, uh, wind farms and other power plants, uh, particularly renewables technology plants, to have some sort of a community obligation to provide grants and so on. And we can certainly see that occurring within the ACTN region, uh, where, where many uh, community functions are actually funded by the wind farms, for example. And citizens, of course, then try to hold governments responsible for the health of the economy um, through through um, through elections. Uh, and in the meantime, business tends to control the important resources, such as investment capital, technology, and employment opportunities, and so on. And, and together, they promote a, a healthy economy and of course, therefore, government and business must work together. But what's interesting is that there are many different uh, perspectives on the government-business relationship. Uh, and, and if you look at the literature, this sort of you know, begins with, uh, I suppose, Jacobi in around 1975, uh, looking at what government attempts to do. But bearing in mind that until the 1980s, uh, there was a very much a strong protectionist role for government in Western economies. But beginning particularly in the 1980s, we start to see a move toward a more Marcus-based uh, uh, economy. And also, with governments and businesses entering into joint or mixed ventures, uh, even businesses being made the tax collector, uh, if you look at compliance in the Australian uh, taxation system, for example, it's actually run by private businesses, typically tax agents registered with the taxation office, but in effect, the private sector takes on a regulatory role uh, through, through accounting practices. And so what this means is that all of this uh, privatisation, uh, marketisation and so on, it, the line between government and business is somewhat blurred. And we see private ownership of hospitals, even private ownership of prisons, uh, where government funds the, the private company for actually running the prisons on their behalf. And most of this is based on a fundamental belief that businesses are more efficient at producing goods and services than government, and that government's proper role in the market economy is to focus on policy rather than focus on service provision. So if we look at the Australian economy, for example, uh, there's a couple of issues that we can see straight away where this doesn't necessarily happen. We have Australia Post, which still remains government-owned, still providing a function that is regarded as important in the economy, yet we can see that uh, the postal system is uh, under threat in many ways from uh, from all sorts of other technologies and private providers, particularly in uh, the parcel goods area. Uh, but at the same time, we have the National Broadband Network coming under government ownership. And in some ways, this is a return to the way of doing things in the past. <coughs> So why do we need theories? Well, theories help us understand and they try to explain to us the world around us. They guide us in choosing our different paths, for example. Uh, we can look at individual rights versus collective responsibility. And depending on which theory we subscribe to, we'll determine the types of actions that we may make in terms of 
uh, action of the government in, in the economy. But theories enable us to take a slice of reality to examine or provide a particular lens through which we can view the world and conduct a methodological analysis. Definitions become very important because we have to avoid confusion. And if we're to be able to discuss, debate, analyze, and learn about key concepts, and we have to actually define them. So I, I always sort of uh, encourage students to focus on their definitions because when you, particularly when you write, it's a one-way argument. There's no point for clarification. Whereas if you're having a conversation, you can be speaking with somebody, uh, you can see that your message is not getting across, you can clarify, you can ask questions and so on. But with the written word, it's very much uh, a different way of communicating. And therefore, uh, we need to spell out quite clearly what we mean by a particular definition. And we can look at examples such as the state. When we talk about the state, I mean, one way to conceptualise it is what Ryan, uh, Parker and Brown suggest, uh, that the state consists of all institutions that are funded from public revenue. And these include the government, the legislature, the judiciary, the public bureaucracy, health, education, social security systems, the police and the military. Whereas for others, it's about uh, supreme political association characterised by organised power and supreme authority or sovereignty. Uh, for others, it's the government in its broadest and its most abstract sense, taking into account the constitution. Um, for Dunleavy and O'Leary, it can be distinguished from pre-modern forms of social organisation. So having uh, bureaucratic ways of recruiting its staff, uh, a form of monopoly of force, recognisably separate institutions or sets of institutions and so on that create clearly different or identifiable public and private spheres. Whereas uh, others go even further, for example, uh, Eidelman suggests that the state benefits and it threatens, now it is us, often it is them, it is an abstraction, but in its name, men, uh, cited in the original, are jailed or made rich on oil depletion allowances and defence contracts or killed in wars. So the state really has many different definitions, and if we were to ask, well, which is the correct definition? The correct answer is, well, all of them, because each definition explores a different perspective of the state, yet each is correct in its own context. And so in the social sciences, looking for the right answer really is a sort of 1970s approach to education. You know, the teacher asks you a question and you're either right and therefore a good student or you're wrong and therefore, you know, not real smart. But, but this doesn't really work in the social sciences, because if we had the right answer, to the questions that face us today. There would be no war, there would be no hunger, and everybody would be happy. Yet we find that the opposite is true. We have sort of never-ending wars. We have half the planet starving while the other half die of obesity. And of course, we're suffering from all sorts of psychological problems um, and you know, seeking ways to deal with mental health and, and so on. And whether this is a function of time or whether it's just the human condition, uh, are up for debate, but the simple fact is that without um, uh, without looking for the right answer, what we can do is we can learn the complexities, we can learn to define, and we can learn to articulate and enunciate the ideas that we're trying to grapple with. And this then becomes really a first step in uh, in understanding the world that we live in. Now, when we come to uh, capitalism as we know it today, it's important that we think about the pre-capitalist era 
and here we're talking about really before Adam Smith uh, and we're talking about a sort of mercantilist or mercantilism and it was the one-way import of raw materials, gold and silver from colonies, particularly into, uh, into Britain. Now, this led to, um, in effect, protection of British industry. So raw materials came from uh, colonies which were, in effect, exploited by uh, the colonising uh, country. The uh, raw materials were brought back to the factories, uh, particularly in Manchester and the like in the UK. And what this did was actually provided work for the working class. And then, of course, the produced goods were sent back to places like India. And this meant that uh, the raw materials were taken away, provided jobs for um, workers in the colonising country. The um, colonised uh, people, were, in effect, became a market and they were only able to purchase back uh, from the from the uh, colonising country. So Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations in 1776, it brings forward this uh, stinging critique of regulation of commerce and trade that was current. And he said that if people were set free to better themselves, it would, as if by an invisible hand, actually benefit the whole society. And what he was talking about was supply and demand or the concept of supply and demand. So instead of having it that where industries were protected, and what was happening at the time was the corn laws, and corn in this case meaning all sorts of grain used to make bread, but in effect uh, regulating and preventing the import of cheaper grains from overseas meant that uh, British farmers had a monopoly on the market. And of course the price of bread went through the roof, people couldn't afford it, uh, and the only people who were being made um, better off by the system were the farmers themselves who were protected. So Smith starts arguing against the Corn Laws, and it's not until some time that, uh, that these laws are uh, overturned in, in the, uh, in the uh, early 1800s. And, and so this is often regarded as the beginning of the capitalist economic system uh, as we know it. And the key principle, of course, from Adam Smith is the idea of um, competition, where the economy is regulated by the invisible hands of supply and demand, and in, in his words, resulting in the best possible quality and quantity at lowest possible price. And for many of us today, we will use these sentiments in the way that we speak about uh, the market. We expect competition, we expect consumer choice and so on. But, but uh, until uh, Adam Smith, uh, intellectually at least, this, uh, this wasn't really how the world operated. People have since critiqued the idea of the unrestricted invisible hand of the free market and the invisible hand being um, uh, more or less a way for rich people to get richer and so on. But what I wanted to turn to now were just some a history of the economic ideas uh, and, and then look at the history of political ideas. And, and usually what I'm expecting from first-year students is not so much that they will know the, you know the the date of birth and the date of death of these famous figures, but I really want them exposed to uh, some of the great thinkers in economics and politics. Uh, and, and, it, and it is really important. I mean, we notice uh, just at the moment there's an advertisement that Dick Smith is funding about uh, reducing immigration and reducing the population and so on. And so I begin with Thomas Malthus. Uh, so Malthus was... Um, or wrote in the uh, late 1700s, uh, early uh, 1800s, and he concluded that 
it was actually prudent to deny the masses more than the bare essentials because otherwise we would have a ruinous population explosion. And so the, elite, the elites welcomed Malthus's analysis because it suggested there was a moral justification for the collection of wealth in the hands of the few while suffering among the workers uh, or those who produced the wealth uh, was acceptable. It wasn't nice, but it was actually a result of natural causes and therefore uh, the suffering was you know, part of the function of nature. Herbert Spencer then uh, comes along sometime later, and he writes in the late uh, 19th century uh, in particular, but he extrapolates on Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection, and he coins the phrase survival of the fittest. So Spencer applies uh, Darwin's ideas to what becomes known as social Darwinism. So Spencer suggests that the wealthy were so favoured because they were actually biological superior to the poor, so the possession of great wealth then set the owner apart as a particularly worthy individual. And again, you can see the, the ideas are in effect uh, justifying wealth being concentrated in the hands of the few. David Ricardo, uh, one of the most famous uh, of economists, uh, he develops the theory of the iron law of wages. So he says that uh, owners of factories would be driven by the profit motive to pay the workers only enough to bring them back to the factory to work for another day. And what's interesting is that often we probably jokingly say this about our own work, that we're paid just enough to make, you know, keep making us go back to work, uh, whereas if we had the choice, we'd be doing something else. So while Ricardo suggested that the process may be perceived as cruel, it was the on only in this way would enough capital be created to fund future production. So although workers' conditions were admittedly miserable, they would degenerate even further unless additional capitals were created. So the profound exploitation of the workers and the concentration of money into fewer and fewer hands was therefore rationalised. So next to come along uh, was Karl Marx, and Marx in the Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital and so on. He saw history as the story of human labour and struggle, uh, and he said that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. He saw a historical development from the caste system into the modern industrial system, resulting in the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. So in effect, the bourgeoisie are the owners of the means of production, whereas the proletariat were the workers, those who had only their bodies and could only sell the use of their bodies uh, for work in order to earn an income. Now, Marx said that the ideas of the ruling class in every epoch were the ruling ideas, and he saw religion as the opiate of the masses. And what he meant by this was, in effect, that if you were focused on the afterlife, then you would put up with all sorts of uh, exploitation during the current life. Uh, so, so, in effect, workers suffered from false consciousness where that they, uh, they were exploited, uh, but they didn't really realise and didn't tend to do anything uh, about this system. So Marx saw that under communism, it would be arranged from each according to his ability and to each according to his need. In effect, Marx saw the state as the reason that the workers were exploited, and therefore the only way to overcome this problem was to overthrow the state. So in the 1890s, we see the labour movement rise and really starts to put a human face on capitalism by demanding shorter working hours, uh, age limits for different types of work, uh, collective bargaining, uh, and, and so on. And much of this emerges from the ideas in particular of Karl Marx, but also through the Fabian Society, the work of the, the Webbs and, and others. So following the 
Great Depression. Uh, we have John Maynard Keynes uh, and often referred to the concept of Keynesianism. And Keynes is concerned about the what happens to people during the Great Depression. And he suggested in the interest of economic growth and full employment, the state should actually establish certain controls, uh, which in effect uh, become a guiding influence uh, on, on the economic system. So to put it simply, uh, Keynes suggests that the, the market naturally fluctuates between cycles of boom and bust, and that, to put it simply, governments should save during the good times and spend during the bad times to keep the economy on an even keel. Uh, and, and in effect, um, this would keep full employment and prevent things like the Great Depression from ever happening again. And his ideas remain for many, many years up until about the 1980s when the ideas of Keynesianism start to be, uh, to be challenged. But moving now to the history of political ideas, we go right back again to the, uh, to, to the uh, 16th and early 17th centuries. And we have uh, Thomas Hobbes, and in his major work, Leviathan, he suggests that uh, men in a state of nature that is a state without civil government are in war of all against all in which life is hardly worth living. And the only way out of this desperate state of affairs is to make a social contract and establish the state to keep peace and order. And Hobbes says, in effect, that civil society is only achievable with the state and by vesting absolute power in the government is necessary to avoid this war of all against all or the animal society. Along comes Locke uh, and Locke in his two treatises on government, particularly the second treatise, he explains how government comes into being um, and that people agree that their condition in a state of nature is unsatisfactory. And so they agree to transfer some of their rights to a central government while retaining others. And these are the sort of early ideas of the social contract between uh, citizens and, and, uh, and their governments. And we have um, various 17th and 18th century European political philosophies concerning natural rights theory and the social contract, uh, some conservative and some radical. But Box is radical uh, and it's natural right theories influence the ide ideologies of the American and French revolutions. Now, in particular, uh, Locke was writing around the time of the 1688 Orange Revolution, and he opposed Hobbes, and he argued that the government should never have absolute or monistic power. Now, the sorts of things that I expect my students to uh, know about these great thinkers is really that you know Hobbes was for the, uh, the absolute power of the state to ensure a civil society, whereas Locke agrees on this to some extent that the government should not have absolute or monistic power. And we start to see things like separation of powers, uh, the doctrine of separation of powers, the separation between the executive, the legislature and the judiciary, for example, as ways to uh, limit the uh, control uh, by government. So in effect, to give individuals some protection from government. Now, Rousseau, uh, in the social contract, suggests that government authority exists because of this contract. So the government authority uh, is a contract between the authorities and the governed. So the contract implies that the governed agree to be ruled only so that their rights, property and happiness are protected by their rulers. But once the rulers cease to protect the ruled, then the social contract is broken and the governed are free to choose another set of governors or magistrates. And Rousseau's work becomes very influential during the uh, French and American uh, revolutions as well. 
But moving on from there, and, and this uh, presupposes the ideas of, of Karl Marx is, uh, is Hegel. And Hegel, in his Phenomenology of the Mind, uh, develops the concept of the master-slave dialectic. And I'm trying to simplify this here, but in effect, the master-slave dialectic has the master becoming the master by physically conquering uh, the other, uh, whom is then enslaved. And the slave is at first grateful for having his life spared, remains fearful that the master may still take it from him, but the slave sees himself, in the language of the times, as inferior, degraded and dependent, whereas the master sees himself as superior, ennobled and independent. So each needs the other to be what he is. The slave wants freedom, but the master cannot give it to him without losing his social role uh, as the master. And, and indeed, the slave then starts to take on uh, their own social role. And this becomes a precursor, if you will, to Marx's idea of, uh, of false consciousness. But, but the master-slave dialectic is probably the most important thing, uh, I think, for beginners in political science to remember about, uh, about Hegel. Then Jeremy Bentham develops the concept of utilitarianism. So he didn't argue that there was an absolute, eternal, or universal rule in nature or a natural law by which people should govern their conduct. But he believed that, uh, or his liberalism was based on a belief in the value of human self-reliance. So he rejected natural law, but he suggested that uh, his own measure by which to evaluate human conduct, and he called it uh, utilitarianism. So in effect, individuals seek pleasure and they seek to avoid pain, uh, and therefore the sum of the greatest happiness uh, equals the good society. So when measuring um, or assessing uh, how a policy may impact if we take a utilitarian view, it more or less takes a view that uh, if it will create greater happiness than unhappiness uh, in society, then it can be a good thing. And if you want to read more about this, um, John Stuart Mill expands on these ideas. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, John Stuart Mill is our next uh, uh, great thinker that we look at. Um, Mill, in effect, uh, attacks laissez-faire capitalism. And laissez-faire means let it be, leave it alone. In effect, the uh, off-handed or invisible hand approach um, considered by Adam Smith. Uh, John Stuart Mill was against this and in his great works on liberalism, on the subjection of women and utilitarianism, for example. He becomes the first liberal democratic philosopher to attack the enslaving capacity of capitalism. And his arguments were so effective that uh, few liberals in the American sense, have supported laissez-faire since his time. Mill's ideas led many to prefer a form of social democracy over capitalism as opposed to liberal democracy. So, so more of a sort of collective approach uh, where equal opportunity was provided through healthcare and education and where, where um, people of all classes and all genders had equal access or equal opportunity, if you will, and in many ways, this is John Stuart Mill's work. If you read it with modern eyes, it's almost like you're reading a summary of your own education you've received in, if you've lived in a liberal democracy. Many of Locke's, sorry, John Stuart Mill's ideas have been implemented and have become the norm in terms of education and the way that we understand government to this very day. Later, we move into John Dewey, uh, and the concept of social engineering, particularly in the early 20th century. But Dewey suggests that people should study their society and not hesitate to make institutional changes that would improve their lives. 
uh, and that we should actually try to shape human beings and make them more socially compatible. And education tends to be one of these forces, of course. But the commitment of liberalism to experimental procedures carries with it this idea of a continuous reconstruction of ideas of individuality uh, and of liberty in intimate connection with changes in social relations. Um, there have been many uh, instances of social engineering enacted through things like uh, architecture and town planning and so on. And, and this continues to this day. I mean, even with uh, the idea of light rail and high density living and so on, uh, it seems to be the modern trend. Um, yet there have been cases we can look to in the past. And I, I often use the example of Surrey Hills in Sydney. If you live in Surrey Hills in terraced housing, and you catch the light, uh, light rail to work, then you're probably one of the privileged few who can afford that sort of uh, place to live uh, with that access to amenities. But if you go back to the 1920s, for example, um, you would have been, in effect, working class, living in a slum and then catching the tram to work. So time uh, and taste uh, can change uh, and circumstances uh, really can be engineered in completely different and unexpected ways with unexpected outcomes. In more recent history, particularly after the 1980s in terms of their impact, but um, Frederick uh, von Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman, they argued for political, economic and individual freedom and emphasised the need to reduce government intervention uh, in the economy. And, and here we start to see this, what many refer to as neoliberalism, uh, in, in effect, where we have uh, more of a market-based economy, but combined with a strong conservative idea uh, of the state, particularly in, in society. And this was reflected in the political practice of the likes of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the United States, and the Hawke and Keating governments here in Australia. And it was interesting that in Australia, we actually had a Labor government implementing many of the market reforms beginning in 1983. But what was interesting was that uh, when Kevin Rudd came to power, he suggested that the time had come to proclaim that the great neoliberal experiment of the past 30 years had failed, the emperor had no clothes, that neoliberalism, the free market fundamentalism that it had produced uh, had been revealed as little more than personal greed dressed up as an economic philosophy. And so with his um, interventions in the economy in, you know, during the global financial crisis in 2008, we see a particularly Australian return to Keynesianism, uh, an idea that had been more or less debunked from around the 1980s globally. And that's the interesting thing we see about government business relations and why I like to teach it, because it really does bring uh, to bear the Socratic method where we actually question first principles and we question our understanding, we question our definitions in order to then have some form, some form of a dialogue or a debate and really, when it comes to writing uh, writing essays, it becomes about a, a more or less a debate where we're one voice, but we're debating two sides and determining or guiding the reader uh, toward the argument that we, we hope logically um, to to win that particular argument. And and I always like to say to my students that uh, education from Aristotle, the roots of education are bitter, but the fruit is sweet. Or from from me just now. Uh, work hard, play hard, and uh, I think that a university education uh, is a privilege that uh, if you were born before the uh, Second World War, uh, you may not well have had that opportunity, whereas today, increasingly in the developed countries, 
uh, it, it is more and more achievable uh, and, and it's something to be taken seriously. Uh, I, I do have a liberal education uh, pedagogical approach to uh, to my teaching, so really it's not about what you think, but I think the most important thing is is how you think. And one of the most interesting things about the capitalist economic system is that it's a system that in effect was created by people who are no longer living and we either fit into that system and make no changes, no improvements, uh, and then we pass it on to the next generation, or if we can better understand it, we can actively make improvements so that uh, humanity is, is better off as a result. So there you go, there's an introduction to capitalism 101 or government business relations, and until you hear from me next time, stay active.